Welcome to the Restoration Living Podcast with our host, military chaplain and spiritual care director, James Johnson. With so many voices in this world fighting for our attention, it's easy to believe that we aren't good enough, that our past will always haunt us, and that we will never measure up. But the voice of God is telling us that we can live a life of restoration in Him. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want us to let our past decisions determine our present peace. Instead, He wants us to find that life of restoration in Him. So grab your Bibles and join us as we dig into God's Word to discover timeless truths and proper application for our lives today. When I was still teaching high school English, I began to notice a pattern that was problematic. You see, when students would do normal classwork and, and regular tests, most of the time they would do fine. It would just fall into the normal grading scale. But whenever we took larger tests, unit tests, I would have some students that would always have a situation. And it wasn't the same students every time, but someone would have a life situation come up. They'd have too much going on with work or school. Their parents wouldn't be able to help them, and so they'd need to take care of brothers and sisters, things like that, church events, sports events, whatever. And they would make a bad grade on a big test that would count a big percentage of their grade. And this kind of broke my heart because most of the time these students were you know pretty good students that it was just a once in a while situation and so I amended the rules and I added an extra option that if a student on a test made a bad grade they could come to tutoring they could study and they could retake the test and I would average their first and second grade together. So if a student made a 50 on their first try, if they came to tutoring and studied and made a 100 on the second try, the average would be a 75. And the heart behind that was that students who had the once in a while problematic situation come up could raise their grade because a 75, which at the time was a C, was much better than 50, which was an F. But I noticed another trend after I started allowing this new set of rules that students began to work the system, that they would on purpose not do well on their first test so they could know specifically what material was covered on the test and then they could study, go to tutoring, and then make it up later and they would get the averaged grade. You see, they were keeping the letter of the law, of the rules that I put into place, but they were not keeping the heart of those rules, right? And that became a problem as well. As we look at life, people tend to really like to find loopholes, right? They like to find ways to keep the letter of a law, but not keep the heart of it, to look for ways to work around a situation or a system. And the same was true of the people during Jesus' day. You see, there were all of these laws, 613 of them within the Law of Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, right? And we've talked about this before, that there were basically two groups of people. 
there were those that had the wealth and the power to be able to keep all of the laws. They could offer all the required sacrifices. They could do all the required traveling and had no problem missing work, things like that. They could afford to do all of those things. And then on the other end, there were people that simply could not. They just could not keep up with all of the requirements and they, and they tried their best, but they just couldn't really get there. And so many of them, because they could not keep up with everything, they just gave up. And so, as we went through time, the religious leaders began to find these loopholes, ways to keep the letter of the law without keeping the heart of the law. And Jesus had a lot to say about these groups of people throughout his ministry. And this is incredibly important as we pick up where we left off in studying the Sermon on the Mount, as we remember that Jesus came to bring a kingdom that would overturn the system that the system that they were currently operating in was being abused and misused by the religious leaders and it was being kept from those who really wanted to follow after God. So Jesus was coming to fulfill the law and open a door that would allow people to reconnect with God once again. And so as we've been going through this, we've been looking at those different things, but specifically, we're going to pick up and deal with a series as we move into the next portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to bring up a series of laws and rules from the Law of Moses that people had began to misuse and abuse. They were keeping the letter of those laws, but not the heart of those laws. And so as we go through each of these situations in this middle part of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see Jesus do something very important. And before we get into it, I want to make sure we outline it so you don't miss it. You'll see a pattern of what Jesus says. He'll start out with the phrase, you have heard, and he'll refer to a section of the Law of Moses. Then he'll follow up with a phrase where he says, but I say. And if you are not really putting yourself in the sandals of a first century Jewish person, this probably won't make much of a matter of it. It won't be a big deal to you, right? It won't make much difference in how you read it. Because we are used to thinking of Jesus as God in skin. But remember at the time, they just thought of Jesus as another rabbi. And this was blasphemous because the law of Moses came to Moses from God. These were God's commandments to the people. And so as we look at this in scripture, Jesus is saying that because he can now tell them how to properly follow a new version of that law, a new version of those commandments. That is making him equal, putting him on equal footing, equal power, equal authority as God. And while we're used to thinking of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this was a very radical and new concept. This would have been considered blasphemy to put yourself on equal footing as God, to say that you have the same authority and power as he does to make laws and commands. And so this would have been radical to the people that were listening to Jesus teach. And we see this pattern throughout Jesus' teaching and in multiple places in the scriptures, we see where it says something like where the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as someone with authority. You see, the rabbis of that time, the teachers of the law and the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, all these religious leaders and religious you know, experts, 
they would rely on the prophets. They would rely on Moses. They would refer back to Scripture to support anything they taught. They did not teach on their own authority. They taught on the authority of someone greater who received their words directly from God, like a prophet or like Moses did. So for Jesus to claim this is incredibly important because there are numerous people that say that Jesus never in his ministry claimed to be God. But we see this is one of many examples where in the cultural context, he does. And when he does things like this in multiple points in the testimony of the Gospels, we see where the people tried to kill him. They would go pick up stones and try to gather a mob to kill him, right? This is why it was so upsetting to so many people because Jesus was making himself equal with God. So with that in mind, let's pick back up in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. And I'll read the whole chunk. We're going to cover two chunks of this because they really go together. And then we'll break it down to figure out how to read it properly and how to apply it properly to our lives today. So starting in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5, it reads, You have heard the commandment that says, You must not commit adultery. But I say... Anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You have heard it, the loss that says, A man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Now these two sections go together because we're talking about lust and adultery and divorce, right? These three things in the Jewish culture and the law of Moses are interconnected because when you made the covenant to marry someone, it was a lifelong covenant until death. The only thing that would allow a person to get a divorce in the law of Moses was unfaithfulness or death. If a person died, they could remarry. If the other spouse was unfaithful, then they could be you know, divorced and the other spouse could remarry, right? But here's the thing. As we look at this, once again, the people had found a loophole. They were working the system. They were following the letter of the law, but not the heart of the law. And so Jesus is trying to restore the original intent of this law. And you saw twice where he said, you have heard it said, or you have heard the law, you've heard the commandment, right? And then follows up with saying, but I say. So you saw where we pointed that out. So let's go back and let's begin to break this down a little bit more, get some better context, and then see what do we do with this today in our lives. So in verse 27, Jesus starts out by referencing the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. And this comes from a couple of places, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, that this idea is adultery is where you have sexual relations and physical intimacy with someone who is not your spouse. 
But Jesus takes it one step further beyond the physical and says it's even in the heart. Because the spirit of this is not just a physical intimacy, it is anything that takes us away from being intimate and, and attracted and connected to anyone besides our spouse. That they want us to be the, only focused on the love we have for our spouse and the attraction and the physical intimacy that comes along with that. And so Jesus has a very powerful picture that he paints here, this idea of, of self-mutilation. And sadly, many people throughout church history have taken this literally. They have began to, to hurt themselves, injure themselves, and, and mutilate their own bodies in an effort to try to tame their sexual desires and their lusts of the flesh, as we could sometimes call it, right? And you can look through church history and search that on your own and find tons of examples. But as we look through this, it's very obvious to anyone that, that understands how language works that this is hyperbole. Specifically, this was rabbinic hyperbole. Rabbis would tell stories that had extreme or unlikely scenarios and situations, things that probably would never happen in real life. And Jesus here is using that hyperbole, that extreme exaggeration to say, if your eyes causing you to lust, gouge it out. The problem is, after you've lusted twice after somebody, you're out of eyes, right? And you're blind. The same thing's true with body parts, right? If your hand actually causes you to sin, then two times and you have no hands, right? Or any other part of your body. Basically, you'd be hacked to pieces after you've sinned just a few times, right? Jesus is not saying we should mutilate our bodies. What he's saying is, this is how serious you should treat sin. And this is the heart of the law of Moses. This is why the punishment for these sins was execution, was death, because God takes sin seriously. But what the people had done in Jesus' day is they had found this loophole and they had said, see, I'm not physically touching that person. Oh, but I'm lusting after them. I'm looking at them. I'm thinking inappropriate thoughts about them. And they would say, oh, that's not a sin because I'm not actually physically doing anything to them. And Jesus wants them to understand that God is concerned about our hearts. And anyone who has studied the scripture sees in numerous occasions where we see this, probably the most, uh, most uh, popular section is where Samuel, the prophet Samuel, goes to find the next king of Israel after Saul has lost his favor with God. And on his way to find it, David, he looks at all of David's brothers and sees that they're handsome and they're strong and they're charismatic. And it's says, surely one of these is the king. And God tells Samuel that man looks on the outside, but God looks at the inside. David echoes this numerous times throughout the Psalms, how God cares about our hearts so much more than what we do on the outside. In numerous places, the prophets say something similar to this idea that I want mercy and not sacrifices. Why? Because God cares about our hearts. And so Jesus wants them to see that, and he paints this very graphic word picture, this rabbinic hyperbole. And what we need to see here is that lust is not just us, you know, wanting something in the idea of, oh, I, I want another person that's not my wife, even though Jesus says that. Anyone that looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
He's helping us see that anything evil in our heart is sinful. And the wages of sin, as, as Roman tells us, and, and we see echoed you know, in the New Testament, what we talk about in the Old Testament is that sin is serious to God. And Jesus is saying that sin is so serious to God that even lusting after a woman is adultery and deserves death. This would have been extremely radical because surely they're sitting here thinking, well, who can keep from that, right? Who can stop that from happening? And Jesus is setting the stage for us to understand that it is better for us to get away from these things than to lose our eternal standing with God. And we'll find out later that Jesus is the way that makes this possible for us by giving us a new heart and new mind through the Holy Spirit. But Jesus goes on and, and talks about something that's coupled with adultery, which is this idea of divorce. Jesus wants us to recognize it's a heart problem. So look at what he says in verse 31. You've heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. Once again, this was a reference from the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24, that if she displeased him, right, that he could write a letter of divorce and he could, you know, separate himself. Look at what it says in, in Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 1. It says, suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away from the house. When she leaves his house, she is free to marry another man. But if the second husband also turns against her, writes a document of divorce, hands it to her and sends her away, or if he dies, the first husband may not marry her again, for she has been defiled. That would be detestable to the Lord. And so as we're looking at this mindset here, the heartbeat of this was very different than the actual law. Once again, Jesus is focusing on the heart. And so when we look at this situation, we have to understand that that this is not God's original intention. We know this if we skip further down into the Gospel of Matthew. We find another situation where the Pharisees come to trap Jesus. In, in Matthew chapter 19, we see that in verse 3 of chapter 19, where it says, Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him, speaking of Jesus, with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? See, this was that what had happened is that if a woman did anything to displease her husband in the culture of the day, he could just write her a letter and divorce her. But Jesus says this, haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. If you've been to a Western wedding, you've probably heard that as part of the ceremony, right? What God has joined together, let no man separate or no man put asunder is the old way of saying it, right? And so Jesus then asked the question, then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. See, Jesus once again lets them know it's an issue of the heart. He goes on to say, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this. Ooh, Jesus does it again. He puts himself on equal authority with God. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. 
You see, what is all of this talking about? Jesus is getting at the point that divorce is not God's intent. Staying married until death was the goal. This was a covenant. Covenants were serious business. And, and we don't take our promises seriously anymore. We just don't, right? If I take a loan and I say, I will pay it back, and I don't want to pay it back, and I don't pay it in time, that's fine. They just charge me a penalty fee, or I, I earn some, gain some interest on it. But that's really all that happens. At worst, maybe I refinance that debt. I spread it out for a longer term. I, I work different things, consolidate my debt. There's a lot of ways around it. But in Jesus' day, if you couldn't pay your debts, you and your children would be go, would be sold into slavery until you paid back that debt. So when you gave your word and you committed to do something, it was a serious thing just to give your word. A covenant was meant to be the most sacred and serious of promises that you could make, and marriage is a covenant. It's a lifelong commitment to stay together. The two has become one. And Jesus said what God puts together, no man should separate. And so that is the heart of. Now, are there instances where divorce should happen? Absolutely. In situations of, of abuse, right? That's not God's original intent for a, one spouse to physically, emotionally, verbally, sexually abuse their spouse. We see tons of examples in the, the New Testament where, where Paul and, and the other writers of the New Testament talk about the sacredness of marriage and how husbands and wives should work together in harmony, right? And that's what the heartbeat is. But the people had worked the system, especially those who were wealthy. You see, the average person could not afford a divorce. They would spend years of their life saving up to be able to afford the, the, the to get married. And there are two parts of Jewish culture we need to just reference really quickly. One was called the Mohar. And the other was the Ketabah, okay? The Ketabah was the marriage contract, right? And this was a huge part of what responsibilities the bride's family and the groom's family would bring together, or if the groom was older, what he would bring to the, to the, to the family to make up for marrying the daughter. And so the first thing we see is what's called the Mohar. So the Ketabah is the contract, but the Mohar is what we would now call a dowry. A bride price is another word for it, right? And so the Ketabah is the contract that negotiated what was supposed to happen here, right? And there were two parts. The first is what would be paid to the bride's family because as long as the daughter stayed with the family, she would contribute to the home. She would cook. She would clean. She would work the, the, the around the house. She would do things on the farm and take care of animals. She might even go into the marketplace, buy, sell, trade, all kinds of things to bring value and services to the family but once she was married she would leave the family and the family would lose out not just that but they would lose out and want to make sure that their daughter was taken care of and so that the the family would receive the mohar the bride price the dowry and this would make up for the the loss of the daughter to the, her family when she left and joined the groom's family. They would, depending on where they lived, this could be hundreds, maybe thousands of miles in certain situations, right? Where they would leave, the, the, the daughter would leave her home and would come live in her husband's home, connected to her husband's family, right? And so as this happened, there would need to be a backup because what would happen after 
the husband was displeased. Well, then in the Ketabah, there would be in this contract, there would be a lot of clauses and things of what would happen in the event of death, the cessation of marriage, or a divorce. And so what would happen is... This would be many different things, but most commonly it was money. And so if the husband said, oh, my wife displeases me, I want to divorce her, he would have to send her back to her family with enough money to equal what it would cost, what her husband would provide for her. And that would be different in every situation, right? But the goal was each of these things was a detriment. So the average person did not get a divorce. This was something that the elite could do. Specifically, the religious leaders started to practice this because they had the wealth. And whenever they wanted to, you know, as they got older, if they wanted to marry a younger woman, they would say, oh, my wife displeases me, so I'm giving her a, uh, a certificate of divorce. I'm paying the price and sending her back to her family. Not everybody could do this. And so as this became more and more acceptable and more and more popular, Jesus is setting it straight both with the idea of lust and with the idea of divorce. That all of these things are problems with the heart. That yes, we see this again, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, that there are times where there should be, you know, divorce. If there's an unfaithfulness and in modern times we argue about what does unfaithfulness mean right is it is it a pornography addiction is that unfaithfulness right you know all kinds of things in that vein is a person who spends all of their time quote unquote married to their job is that adultery is that a reason for divorce and we argue all of these things but we see two principles here first is that it's a matter of the heart that's what god cares about man looks on the outside but god looks at the heart and the second thing is that this is not God's intention. God's intention is that people who took marriage vows would keep their vows. That's the goal. And marriage is so sacred. This is why in numerous places in the New Testament, probably the most famous one comes from the book of Revelation, where it talks about how the church is the bride of Christ. And then the same seriousness that marriage vows are taken is the same vow that Jesus took by making the new covenant, right? To come in and get us to restore himself a clean bride that he makes a way for us to be connected to him again. So with this context and this understanding, what do we do with this? Because the reality is in our current culture, we see that divorce is rampant. And sadly, as time has gone on, the numbers can be misleading, right? Just a decade or so ago, the statistics said that the average rate of divorce was 50% in the United States. Now that number's going down and that looks like, oh, things are going great. Divorce is on the decline. But that is a false positive, so to speak, because what's happening now is less and less people are actually getting married. More people are saying, you know what? I, I don't know if I'm ready for that serious of a commitment. So let's just live together first. And they do everything married people do. They live together. They have physical intimacy. They share their money, right? They go on trip. For all intents and purposes, in the eyes of society, they are married. But they don't have the heart and mindset of God that marriage is not something to be entered into lightly. It's a serious and a sacred thing. So what do we do with all of this? Well, 
If you're a person that has been making excuses about what you do in your heart and your mind, that you're not physically doing it, then I got news for you. Jesus has a lot more to say on that issue. As we continue through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see this principle applied over and over again, that man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. That lust is something that is, is so much a part of our culture today that it's just normal. It's normal to, to have, you know, half-naked men and women in even television commercials. You go to the beach, and there are some swimsuits that cover less than underwear do. And I find it very ironic that most people would not walk around in their underwear because they would feel that was indecent. But they'll go to a pool or the beach, right, in a swimsuit that is smaller than their underwear, covers less of their body than their underwear does, their undergarments. But they're not ashamed at that. And so this, this weird idea that, that we can look but not touch, right? That, and I've heard that from so many people over the years. Oh, I'm just looking, but oh, I'm not touching, so I'm not doing anything wrong. No. Man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. So if you're struggling with lust, Jesus puts it on the same seriousness, saying that it is so important that, that you would be better off to mutilate your body than to let your heart be that dirty. That's a, it's a, yes, it's hyperbole. Yes, it's an exaggeration, but that's how serious God takes sin. And then, if you're a person that, that is struggling and thinking of the idea of divorce, it, yes, there are reasons to divorce. But man, that should be a last-ditch effort. And it should only be done in situations of danger or in true infidelity, especially unrepentant infidelity. Lastly, I want to encourage you that if you haven't been doing things God's way, Jesus has a better way for you. I love, love, love that early followers of Jesus, before they were called Christians, were called followers of the way. Because Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, right? And that if we want to experience life in its fullness, it comes from Jesus. So if you're struggling in your marriage, hey, that's understandable. It happens. But recognize that that it's all about the heart. And if you've been divorced already, I recognize that. And Jesus makes a way for that as well. But from here on out, we need to seek and strive to have a heart that follows after God, that doesn't keep the letter of the law, but keeps the heart of it as well. Because man looks at the outside, but God cares about our hearts. And I pray that we would have not just clean hands, as we used to sing the song, right, that comes from Scripture, give us clean hands, but also give us pure hearts. So, Lord, I, I pray a blessing on the men and women that listen to this today, that we would have clean hands and pure hearts before you, and that we would have a life that brings your kingdom and is pleasing to you. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We pray that God uses it to inform your mind, improve your life, and ignite your heart with a renewed passion to impact others for the kingdom of God. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you can continue along with us on this journey of restoration living.